Well, this morning we are beginning a new uh, mini-series uh, that will run for the next four weeks. As we head into Christmas next this week uh, coming and then into the new year after that. Uh, for the next four Sundays, we're going to be looking at four massive New Testament passages about Jesus, which I, for one, am super excited about. Uh, they might call, you might call these the purple passages or the classic passages, and it's always great to dig into them. And so you don't want to miss the ones that we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks. John 1 today, Philippians 2 next week, Hebrews 1 on New Year's Day, and then Revelation 1 on the 8th of January. Uh, we've called the series Crown Him, which reflects something of what we are hoping and praying will happen for us and in us over these uh, next four weeks. Uh, what do we mean by crown him? Uh, well, we don't mean what my dad meant when he spoke of crowning me. Uh, I can still remember him saying, I could crown you, which didn't sound great to me, and rightly so, as this usage of crown means to hit someone over the head. Um, the other usage of crown him is what we mean. And that is this, to gladly honour exalt or revere someone as sovereign and ruler over all. To gladly exalt and honour and revere someone as sovereign and ruler over all. That is what we mean by crowning him in this series and it is our hope that convinced by the scriptures we will do just that in relation to Jesus. That we'll do it again if we've already done it before. And maybe even for the first time, if we've never done it. So let's read our first passage uh, in this series from the Gospel of John. And then we'll pray for God's help because we definitely need it. Uh, and you'll see that, I think, as we read these words in John's Gospel, verse 1 through to 18. I'm reading from the ESV. It's on the screen for you, but it'd be great if you had your Bible open as we go through it after we've read it. John chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Verse 14. And the word became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, 
full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Let's pray. Father, we come this morning to this uh, phenomenal part of your word uh, with so many amazing things and realities spoken of in it. And we are in danger of two things. As we come, Lord, we're in danger of being over-familiar with it and so missing its impact this morning. And we're in danger of not grasping it because the things that are here are far beyond our intellectual capacity to get our heads around. We need the illuminating help of your Spirit. So please, Father, would you by your Spirit reveal your Son to us through your Word here in John's Gospel this morning. We ask this in his name. Amen. Well, before we dive into this together, it would be helpful if we know why John actually wrote it. John the Gospel writer, that is. What was his purpose in writing these words, in particular, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Why write these verses in this particular way? And why write, in fact, his whole Gospel, some 21 chapters? be nice to know why, and he actually tells us why in chapter 20 of his gospel as to why he wrote the way he did. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. In other words, the things that are written in this book are a select group of things that John has deliberately chosen to include. Why? Verse 31. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In other words, John wants his readers to firstly be in no doubt as to who Jesus is, to be convinced of the identity of Jesus, that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But more than that, he wants his readers, including us, to respond to Jesus by believing in his name, by putting all our hope and trust in who he is and what he's done, and that by doing that, by believing in his name, we might know life, true life, real life, eternal life. This is why John wrote what he wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. So what does John particularly want to reveal to us about Jesus here in these first verses? It's interesting. It's different from all the other Gospels, right? Matthew and Luke have the, the kind of uh, the nativity story, the birth of Jesus story. Mark's Gospel is different again. It gets smack into the, the ministry of Jesus straight away. John's Gospel starts before time began. So it's quite different. And if you see in verse 1, John introduces us to someone who was there at the beginning, who he refers to as the Word. The Word. 
Look, look there. One in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Right up front, Jesus introduces us to a person called the Word who has no beginning. In the beginning was, John says, already there, present, before anything started. He was in the beginning, he was with God, he was with God the Father, but not only was he with God, John tells us, he actually also was God. He is divine in his nature, in who he is. And John doesn't leave us in the dark for very long before he begins to show us who this word is. We saw that as at the beginning of our gathering, didn't we? Verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. Now, regardless what we might think about Jesus, it's very clear what John thinks about Jesus. What does he say about him? Well, he says that he is eternal. He says that he is eternally, he was eternally with the Father. He says that he is God himself. He says that before the world began was the Word. Before he ever became man or flesh, as John puts it, he was with God. Before creation took its first breath, so to speak, The Word was with God and was God. Friends, what Jesus just in the sorry, what John just in these first two verses is revealing is remarkable. Don't you think? He's revealing that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. That he's the second member of what we call the Trinity. Father, Son, And Holy Spirit. There's no doubt that this is what the Apostle was saying about Jesus. And this is why, as Christians, we believe God is Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God in three persons. So clearly is this what John is saying, that some sects or cults have edited the wording here to deal with what John is clearly saying. One group says something like this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. But that's not what John says, and that's not what the Greek says either. But they can't have a trinity, that group. They can't have more than one God. It's kind of ironic that they've created another one in the way they've changed the language, but never mind about that. John's clear in what he's saying. And it's made even clearer as he goes on, isn't it? Verses 3 through 5. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Again, John is unapologetically clear about who Jesus is, the word who became flesh, that through him all things were made and without him nothing was made that was made. He is the creator 
of all things as well. The literal word here for made is became. And when you, when you translate it that way, it's, it, it's a bit more impactful. All things became through him. Nothing became that became other than him. Right? It's a, it's a concept of existence, isn't it? When you think of it like that. Therefore, all things have their existence from him. That includes you and me. And all things, therefore, owe their existence to him. That includes also you and me. In other words, if it wasn't for Jesus, this word who was with God and who was God, who became flesh, it wasn't, if it wasn't for him, you and I would not know all that we see and know. We would not actually exist. He has given us our existence. Verse 4 and 5 flesh it out even a bit more, saying that Jesus is the source of all life and light. Now, to understand what John's saying here, you have to read the rest of John's Gospel, and this is what's called the prologue, these first 18 verses, and the rest of John's Gospel flesh out the things that are introduced to us here in these first 18 verses. And one of those key things, or a couple of those key things, is this idea of life and light as opposed to darkness and death. And so what John's saying is that Jesus is the source of all life and light and he is the one who will bring an end to darkness and death. We are, this world is, as as it were, in darkness as a consequence of our sin, separated from God, walking in darkness. There's blindness, not physical blindness, but spiritual blindness, which Jesus addresses in John's Gospel as well. And... We are, as we've already heard this morning, facing our own mortality. There's the reality of death. We're staring down the barrel of it at some point. But again, John says, in Jesus was life, and this life was the light of men. And though we are sinners living in darkness and facing the reality of our own death, Jesus is the source of light and life, and he came to bring it to us. Notice verse 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There it is. You've got a picture of the world in darkness because of sin and rebellion. The light, Jesus himself, shines in it and the darkness cannot overcome it. It cannot snuff it out. Jesus actually says in John chapter 8 and verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness any longer, but will have the light of life. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. And the darkness will not overcome it. Why? Because Jesus is the eternal God who made us. The darkness can't overcome him. In fact, as we know just from these things up here on this this bar, light generally overcomes darkness, doesn't it? Jesus is the light of the world. And he dispels the darkness as we receive him and welcome him and follow him. 
I don't know if you've been watching the news this week, but there's uh, been all sorts of talk about the energy crisis, both nationally and locally and even globally. There's been all sorts of deals being struck in Parliament about how they're going to address it and keep the prices down and so on. But that, then there's still the question, of course, as we move into summer, as, the, to, as to the reliability of the supply. Apparently we're to expect power outages, etc., etc. It's a crisis, apparently, that we are facing and it's going to take lots of effort and, and uh, yeah, energy to address it. But just think for a minute. How much energy, how much power must it take to give the cosmos its existence? To create the heavens and the earth and then to sustain them. That's what John's saying. All things became through him. See how profound what John is saying to us here is just in these few verses. Who is it, friends? Who is it that we are dealing with that was born in that manger 2,000 years ago? Who is it? It, on, On first glance, it just looks like a little baby. But John says it's the word become flesh. The one through whom all things became has come among us. And can you catch a glimpse of how great Jesus is? <laughs> He's far more than just a good teacher, you know, a prophet among prophets. You know, one, you know, there's this one and this one, and you could listen to this one. He's far more than that. He's the eternal God who made us. By him we have our very existence, our being. So do you see also that if this lands for us, it makes perfect sense that we would bow before him, doesn't it? It makes perfect sense that we would come to Jesus and take off our little crowns when, where we've been running our own little kingdoms and our own little existence and lay them down before him and crown him above all others. He's worthy of our worship this Christmas season. In fact, every season that he gives us. In fact, given that he made us and we have our existence through him, maybe that's what he made us for. There is no one who can compare with him. So let us crown him. He is the eternal God who made us. But secondly, he is the glorious God among us, which is what verse 14 reveals to us. Let's read it again. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and 
We have seen his glory, glory as of, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This Jesus, who is the eternal God, verse 14 tells us he did something totally mind-blowing. He became flesh. He became flesh and dwelt among us. This is utterly unique and completely astonishing. That the one who put stars in the sky became flesh. To quote John Lennox, the Oxford mathematics professor known for debating people like Richard Dawkins and others, he says this, the one through whom all things became himself became. You get that? The one through whom all things became, himself became. This is astonishing. The one who is eternal, who is outside of time itself and not found bound by it in any way. He stepped into time, submitting himself to the constraints of time, stepping into the world that he made and revealed the glory of God to us. He became flesh. And this is what we call the incarnation, when God enfleshed himself and came among us. The carols put it this way, don't they? Veiled in flesh, the God-man see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel, God with us. And notice what John goes on to say about this incarnation. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And John says something else. He says, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father. Now, this is interesting because the language that John uses here is deliberate. And it reflects a time in history when God dwelt among his people previously. Uh, the particular word that's really important is the word that we have translated here, dwelt. Now, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, this word literally translated is tabernacled. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Now, John's readers would have immediately, when they read that, thought of the Old Testament tabernacle. That was the place where God's presence dwelt among his people and it was the place where God's glory rested among his people. Now, I've got a really um, cheesy diagram here of the temple, of the tabernacle, I'm sorry, but hopefully it'll give you some idea. This is the tabernacle according to Moses, Moses' tabernacle, and uh, this is how it kind of worked and how it was set up. So you've got the... I think I've got a little button here somewhere. Oh, yeah, look at that. Um, you've got kind of the outer court here where everyone uh, could come and offer their sacrifices and so on. Then you have in this section, this, in this uh, tabernacle here, the inner tent, that you've got two sections. You've got the holy place 
which is where all the Levitic priests would conduct their priestly ministry on behalf of the people, offering all sorts of different sacrifices. You can see all the different lists of them. If you want to read through the book of Exodus or Leviticus, you'll see them there. And then in this, at the very back of this tabernacle is a place called the Holy of Holies. And no one went there except the high priest once a year to offer sacrifice on behalf of the people's sins. That holy of holies represented where God dwelt, his presence, his glory, if you like, among his people. And notice you've got all the tribes of Israel, all the people of God, set up around the tabernacle. So what it pictures is clear, isn't it? Here is God in the midst of his covenant people relating to them, mediating his presence among them. He set things up in such a way that they, even though they are sinful, they can come near to him through this tabernacle and the sacrificial system and everything else that's associated with it. God dwelling among his people. When Moses constructed this temple, it took a significant amount of time. It was highly, highly detailed, down to the finest detail. Everything about it, communicating God is holy and you are not. And if you're going to come near to God, you come near to God on his terms, but also communicating that God has provided everything you need to draw near to him. Now, when the temple construction finished, you get, you get to this point in the end of the book of Exodus, Exodus 40. This is what happened. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And notice verse 35. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of Yahweh, the great I Am, filled the tabernacle. Now remember, this is Moses who went up on the mountain. This is Moses who received from God the Ten Commandments, the, the, two, the tablets. But such now is the intense and, and uh, increased presence of God among his people through the tabernacle that Moses has to back off. He can't be there. He can't enter there. Such is the power and might and awe of the God who is presencing himself there. God dwelling among his people at the very centre of their lives. So do you get a sense of what John is saying here? The Word, the eternal God, became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. John is saying that in Jesus the glory of God is among us again, yet in a new way, yet in a heightened way. 
displayed in his miracles and signs, in his words and his works, and ultimately in his death and resurrection on the cross on our behalf. God is mediating his glorious presence among us again, not in a cloud or a pillar of fire, but rather in person. in the person of his own son, Jesus, is the glorious God among us. What in particular does John draw our attention to about God's glory revealed in Jesus? Have a look there. And we, verse 14b, and we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He draws attention to the fact that he is overflowing, is the idea, with grace and truth. Grace from God, undeserved favour from God to those who don't deserve it, and truth about God. You see, just just as Jesus is now the place where the presence of God dwells among us, just like in the tabernacle, he is also the sacrifice provided by God for us that we might draw near to him so that the grace of God might be experienced by us. His undeserved favour towards us as sinners. And not just that, but that the truth about God might be known by us. Who God is. What is God like? What is his disposition toward his world, even towards us as sinners? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Why did God even bother with that whole tabernacle system? Because he's difficult? No, because he wants to dwell with his people. How much more is that clear when the word becomes flesh? We see who God is. We see what he's like. And hopefully we're drawn to him when we see him. Verse 18 says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, namely the Word, he has made him known. The literal word there is he has exegeted him, which is what you do with the Bible. You you open up what's actually there and make it clear. That's what Jesus has done. He has made clear to us the unknown or unseen God. He's the glorious God among us. Now, I don't know whether you're about to go on holidays or uh, you're just going to work right through Christmas, but a lot of people uh, will be going on holidays and going in all sorts of directions. And, um, yeah, much to my confusion, uh, many people will be going camping. 
uh, at this time of year. Um, in fact, at any time of year, it's confusing to me. But anyway, because people, from what I understand, I've never really done it. But uh, if you're going to do it, it's, there's a lot involved. People go to great lengths camping. There's multiple rooms. There's, there's, there's a million pegs. There's, and, there, you know, and then who, who knows if it's going to stay up? I and mean, what if you get it? Like it, people go to great lengths, right? What must it meant? What must it have meant for Jesus to tabernacle among us? From heaven he came. Bring us the grace of God and the truth about God. What must it have meant, and we'll look at this further next week, for him to humble himself and be found in appearance as a man? The one through whom everything has its existence. Friends, this is so unique. This is where Christianity just stands completely on its own. No matter what religion you want to think of, every other religion is uh, focused on certain things that you need to do in order to make your way up to God. Christianity is about everything God has done to reach down to us and lift us out of darkness and give us light and life. So standalone. It's so beautiful. So the question is how do we respond to him? How did people respond to him at the time? It's a pretty big arrival, right? Did people welcome him? What is our response to him going to be? What will it be today as God speaks to us by his word, as God shows us afresh just who Jesus is? Remember John's purpose. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you might have life in his name. That's the purpose of this gospel. Is that purpose going to be fulfilled in your life and in my life? Well, have a look at verse 12. Sorry, verse 11, maybe even verse 10. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, that is his people Israel, and by and large his own people did not receive him. Verse 12, yet to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Notice the call here is that we receive him, which is this idea of welcoming him. If you think of someone who's a great dignitary coming to, I don't know, your suburb or your city or your country, what, what happens normally when that happens? Well, there's all sorts of fanfare and, you know, and all the rest of it that has to happen to welcome this very, very important person. Yet to all who received him, the word who became flesh, all who welcomed him, all who acknowledged him for who he is, all who gave him his rightful place, all who believed in his name, pinning their hopes on him. 
he gave the right to become children of God. One commentator put it this way, to to receive him is to yield allegiance to him, to trust him, to acknowledge his claims and confess him with gratitude. You might say, to receive him is to joyfully crown him. As you can see here, the response is critical in terms of where it lands us in relation to God. Because receiving him changes our eternal status with God, doesn't it? Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, what happened? He gave the right to become children of God. Children of God. His very own children. who belong to him by his grace, who are loved by him as their heavenly father. And it turns out when this happens in our lives, we've experienced a new birth. We were born not of blood, that is not of human descent, this, this, this children of God, nor of the will of the flesh, not of someone's decision, nor the will of man, but born of God, born from above. This is John's desire for his readers. This is what it means to have life in his name. Listen again to the words of this carol. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that man... No more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. How are you responding to him just now? Have you welcomed him? If not, why, why wouldn't you? He is no one else. You will never find someone that comes close to him. Will you yield to him even today? Will you put your trust in him? Will you acknowledge his claims and confess his greatness with gratitude? He is the eternal God who made us. And in becoming flesh, he was the glorious God with us. And friends, he is the one to be received and adored by us. So, come, let us adore him. Come, let us adore him. Come, let us adore him. Christ the Lord. Right. Gracious Father, we want to bow before you this morning and acknowledge that we often don't grasp the magnitude of what you're like, 
of what it meant for you to come for us. To come in order to bring us grace and truth that saves and redeems. Lord Jesus, how we want to say thank you for humbling yourself in order to at some point lift us up. Father, please, by your Spirit, open our minds, open our eyes, quicken our hearts, stir our sense of wonder and awe, that we may crown him, that we may welcome him, that we may joyfully exalt him. Lord, you know every heart in this room, you know where each one of us are at. Please, wherever we are, please take us a step closer and loving you and living for you, delighting in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.